unless your average white male is going to apologize the next time someone shoots up a movie theater. There comes a point where you just kind of have to stop apologizing for something that has nothing to do with you. Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez, and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today on the show, we have Malika Bilal. She is one of the first American anchors to appear on a show wearing a hijab. She talks openly about being a black American Muslim, serving as something of an ambassador for the full community and the opportunities and challenges that come with it. I'm wearing a scarf. It's a visible way to identify me with a religious group. But to make the leap to think that that means you know what I think about. She realizes that she's a role model for not just women, but she's a black Muslim woman who is highly visible because of her broadcast on Al Jazeera. She was really helpful to me in giving us a better understanding of the challenges she faced, but not only that, about how really, you know, the same she is from every other American. People are watching what she does and what she says. She's influencing possibly a generation of black Muslim women who thought maybe that they couldn't do what she's doing. Hi, I'm Malika Bilal, and you're in the stream. Muslims are a hot topic, and so you see them in the news. Um, you see Muslim issues, quote-unquote, in the news. But you don't always see the diversity of the Muslim-American community on the news. You will see people of South Asian descent, or you'll see people of Arab descent. You don't often see African-Americans. There is a push to make sure that we're pushing forward voices that represent the diversity of who we are. We have talked to black politicians. We've talked to black Republicans. We've talked to Latino Democrats, Latino Republicans. You're kind of a trifecta mm-hmm. African-American. I am. You are a woman mm-hmm. and you are a hijabi woman. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. A Muslim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how does that feel in today's day? Mm-hmm. That is a big question. <laughs> I guess it depends on what circumstance I'm in. You don't really walk around with your label. You just walk around as yourself. And so you're not actually thinking about all the things that you are until you're forced to think about the things that you are. And so we all remember very vividly the election campaign that led to last year's election. That was a time where all three of those things were at the forefront. And so I was kind of forced to think about them on a more day-to-day basis than I have been at any other time. You had people like Muslims, you had African-Americans, and you had journalists who were accosted and and harassed at Trump rallies. And so as a journalist covering those things, you kind of think, that could have been me. And I don't ever really want to be behind the headlines. I want to be writing the headlines. I don't really want to be the subject. When people see you, which of the three do you think they see? Mm. That's a good question. I tend to think people mostly see the scarf because it's the first thing you see today. I am wearing a very bright blue one, cobalt blue. (laughs) So the scarf is, is pretty identifiable. And I think for the most part, people see that and they think, you know, they think Muslim. Of course, I'm also black, but I don't think that the first thing you think about when you see me is a black woman. I think you see, oh, a hijabi or a Muslim woman. And then you think whatever you're going to think. You either think, oh, she's oppressed or you think I don't like Muslims or, you know, you think I love that color on her because those are actually things that people have, have said to me. So I know that that's what some people are thinking. But for the most part, I think they see Muslim. Sometimes in America, when they see 
a Muslim person, particularly a black Muslim person, they think, aha, nation of Islam. Yes, yes. Do you find yourself having to explain? All the time, <laughs> all the time. And that's not just to people that aren't Muslim. That's to Muslims, too. People don't always understand the African-American experience. First thing they'll think is, okay, she's Muslim, but she's probably Sudanese. She's probably Somali. She's from East Africa. Um, and then when I have to explain, no, actually, my parents are born here. My grandparents are born here. My great-grandparents were born here. Uh, they don't get it. And you get a lot of, no, no, but where are their parents from? Where are you really from? Is it, is it a generational thing? Is it more often with certain demographics of Muslims? I wish that I could say that that's true. Definitely, I think it's changing. So younger generations do understand that, yes, you can be African-American and a mainstream Muslim doesn't necessarily mean you're in the nation and doesn't mean that you're you know, not born here. But I have had people that are my same age who just didn't quite understand or di- didn't believe me, just really thought that I just didn't know where I was from. Is it true that you are... The first woman who wears a scarf as an anchor on a, a news show? I tend to hesitate to label myself as the first. As far as I know, yes, I am. But I don't want to take away from the accolades or the achievements of anyone who might have come before me. Who knows? Maybe there was someone in the 70s or the 80s that I just don't know about. But as far as I know and what I've been told and from what I've seen, yes. Do you feel a responsibility there? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, there's sometimes where you're just doing your job. You know, you go in and it's a day to day, another day, another dollar. And then I'm reminded when I get tweets or I get messages from people on Facebook. I work in a very social media heavy um, industry. And so the show that I uh, am a host on. The stream. So the stream. Exactly. Um, And so we solicit community feedback. And really, that just means viewer participation. So I like to tell people it's like an old fashioned radio call in show, except instead of calling in, you know, people are using Twitter, they're using Facebook to ask questions of our guests or get their views on air. Along with that also comes people will give you their views on everything. And To be honest, the amount of hate I've gotten, it's like a drop in the bucket compared to just the love and just the the amount of support I've gotten from people. And I remember when I was first starting out, I've been on the air now for about five years. There was a young girl on Twitter and she said, you know, I just wish that I could open my eyes and see you in front of me and talk to you. You're such an inspiration. And the time, it made me embarrassed because yeah. I couldn't understand why this girl saw me as an inspiration. And I had to have my colleague actually kind of explained it to me. This is a big deal, Malika. Um, and it is. And I just I think that sometimes it doesn't dawn on me until I hear those messages. And I think, yes, this is a responsibility. Well, who inspired you to do what you do? So when I was very young, it was Oprah, because a lot of a lot of girls in this industry, women now, I, I, I think, a lot of us look at Oprah as the uh, trailblazer. Um, but then, of course, I'm just I'm surrounded by other females, particularly Muslims, who are doing this work. They're not necessarily in front of the camera, but I, I have a good friend at the AP, uh, now at Bloomberg, an, another at NPR, and others who are you know behind the scenes but are fantastic reporters. And I look to them for this inspiration, but also just kind of a, this encouragement um, so that when things happen and when there are those messages of you know, why are you telling the story and who are you and what gives you the right? We kind of have this little this little group to, to kind of lean on. When you were like thinking about the kind of career and, you know, in a public eye, what kind of advice did you get? Mm-hmm. So I've always had a really good support system from my family and they've never really 
had me shy away from doing anything, but I am a very shy person. I do not like talking to strangers. I, um, I'm very reserved. And so journalism has always been sort of a way to break out of that shell and, and do something that completely scares me, terrifies me. But I like that. I like that because it keeps me on my toes. And then I went to journalism school and I had really supportive professors and, and staff there. But that said, I decided to major in print journalism because, one, I was always told that I was a good writer. Um, but two, because I saw what the broadcast kids look like and they yeah, didn't yeah. look like me. Yeah. Um, they're very put together, very well quaffed. Um, and I, I just kind of knew that that wasn't going to be the place that I would find my comfort Why? Um, and that I'd be the most welcomed. One, because I was, I was a dork. I was very dorky. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, so that was one. But two, because I wore a scarf and I just I didn't think that was a, a, a battle that was I was ready to fight or that even might be worth fighting because I'm, I'm pretty happy in print journalism. So it just wasn't a thing that I kind of considered. You know, it's funny. I grew up in Philadelphia and the NBC station there, KYW, they had a black woman in the 1970s, Orion Reed. It's the kind of front page news advertisers don't like. And she became famous because she was the first black woman on Philadelphia television to have an afro. Wow. And, I mean, she had a big, it was a big Angela Davis afro. And, you know, for months, people were complaining and complaining and complaining, but people got used to it. Mm -hmm. And over the years, it became her thing. And I remember one year, she cut it. And then people complained and complained and complained about, where's the afro? It's gone. (laughs) Um, You know, you, you mentioned fear about asking questions. What was the fear? I think some of it is you just don't know how you're going to be received. And also because as journalists, you know, it's drilled into you, objectivity, objectivity, objectivity. There is this concern that whoever I'm questioning on the other end of my microphone or my pen or whatever it is will think that I'm not being objective or that I am wearing um, my views on my sleeve. In a way, I am. I'm wearing a scarf. It's it's a visible way to identify me with um, a religious group. But then to make the leap to think that that means you know what I think about, you know, um, civil rights or a specific community or a law is is a leap that I'm not comfortable with. But it's a thing that I can't guarantee that the person that I'm interviewing isn't making. It's a tough business. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that we know that when you are trying to figure out a way to break in, thinking about a way to survive. Did you ever consider changing your appearance? No, um, I've worn the scarf now since I was 13. I went to a Muslim school my entire life, which is crazy when I think about it, because it was a fantastic school, got a really good education, um, but it was a bit dysfunctional. Just the fact that you're surrounded by Muslims, there's dysfunction there, things starting on time, things working. So that said, it was a great cocoon in a way, and it, it gave me a sense of self and a sense of understanding on what I believed and, and who I was. And so it wasn't drilling into us what you should believe, it was giving us options for how to be a critical thinker. And that I appreciate because I don't think that you always see that when it comes to religion. So I made the choice for myself to wear a scarf, influenced in part by the fact that my mother and older sister wore one. And so when I was young, I just thought it was beautiful and I wanted to do what they did. I used to beg my mom when I was young 
to wear a scarf, and that's something I regret now when I look at pictures of my like five-year-old self because I look ridiculous in a way too big scarf. Um, <laughs> but it was something that I I looked up to and I admired, and so I wanted it to be a part of me. Now here I am, almost 34 years old. I've lived you know more than half my life with it, and it's just not a thing that I can see not being a part of now who I am. It's a part of my identity. It it, it makes me who I am. You mentioned comfort. You didn't go out on the campaign trail last year, but you did go to the conventions. I did. Hello, I'm Femi Okay. And I'm Omar Badar. And I'm Malika Bilal at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. How were you received at the conventions? Very well. <laughs> Very well. Um, I shouldn't have been surprised, but there was definitely hesitation going into it. I had pitched the idea of us going, my team going in the first place. And if that sounds unusual for people thinking about the news, it's only unusual because we had news teams going, but I work on a talk show. And so for the most part, it's a desk job and guests come to us. Um, But I thought it was just really important for us to be there and be surrounded by that sense of what people were thinking and feeling, particularly because we have this international audience and they were just blown away. They were really bewildered by what they were seeing in this campaign. And so I knew that there was an audience and there's a hunger for it. But that said, there were a lot of tough discussions because I am visibly Muslim, visibly black, visibly a woman. And so it was all of these kind of considerations that I had to to, to think about. Um, Though it was my pitch, sometimes I had to think, do I really want to do this? Um, In the end, we really had nothing to worry about. How were you received by the different parties? So people were really polite. Republicans are very polite. They're very kind. They want to make sure that you're comfortable. And so people were. They said hello to me. They said, good morning. Good to see you in the daytime. And then at nighttime, we'd go into the mass auditorium, the, the, the stadium part. And me and my other team, you know, from Al Jazeera English, and we would be surrounded by people waving these Make America Great Again signs. And they would wave them and cheer really, really loudly whenever one of the guest speakers would talk about banning refugees. Hillary Clinton is promising more of the same. Open borders, executive amnesty, and the surge of Syrian refugees. It's time to take back our country and make America safe again. And then you have the crowd going wild all around you. And it's just this really bizarre disconnect between thinking these people were so nice to us, but now they want to ban people that look like us or people that share our faith. Why Why is that? And, and what's that about? One of the days of the convention, though, we're sitting at our booth um, and we have you know, a pretty prominent logo of Al Jazeera English in the stream. And a gentleman came up to us and he was the minority engagement director um, for the Georgia Republican Party, African-American fellow. And it was so bizarre. I'll never forget it because it was so out of the blue. And he just said, thank you for not letting us scare you away, because if you're not here to tell the story, who will be? And it was a fantastic question. I don't think he knew what an impact he was having, that question, but it was a good question because he's right. You know, I was scared to come, but if I'm not there to tell it, from my perspective, who's going to? Well, that's sort of getting over preconceived notions. I mean, you sort of went in to this thing with some trepidation. Mm-hmm. I mean, not without 
evidence mm-hmm. from what you saw in the media. But then at least one person was able to change that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And and more than him, it's just people, no one gave us a hard time. No one said you shouldn't be here. There was a general consensus of on an individual basis, people are kind, they're nice, and they want you to cover this story. On, on an individual basis, did people, you know, sometimes I go out, you know, I'm African-American and I've covered the last four or five presidential campaigns, Most more often than not, the Republican candidate. And it takes me a while to warm the interview subject up if they're like really, really conservative. And once we get going and everybody's feeling good, they'll start asking me questions Mm -hmm. about, you know, affirmative action or whatever. I mean, did you did you encounter that at all at the Republican convention? Um, I did. And this goes back to my point about people first seeing the Muslim because so, you know, once people get warmed up, exactly like you're saying, then they relax. They realize, oh, you're not out to get them. You really are just asking them questions. And so when those questions are over, then they turn them on you. But for me, the questions were about Islam. Um, Some of them wanted to know about Saudi foreign policy, which, you know, I have no idea. I can't I can't speak to Saudi Arabia's foreign policy. Um, but yes, people think that you might be an expert on other subjects um, uh, based on what you look like. So, yeah. How is it different with the Democrats? Democrats are not as friendly. <laughs> They're not as polite. They're just like your average New Yorker or Chicagoan. They didn't seem to care either way. You know, you're there. Well, duh. You should be covering it. You're a part of the media. Um, so no one went out of their way to either welcome us or to, you know, detract from the fact that we were there. It was just, it was kind of a, a non-issue. Was it more of a, you know, we treat every journalist the same? Or is there a segment of... Uh, you're already on our team. Ooh, that's good because at the conventions, I couldn't even answer that. I, I think it was just your journalist. But the story that comes to mind is I was covering the Women's March in January. It's freezing cold, but everyone's just kind of buoyed by the spirit of all these people coming and they're in a good mood. Um, you know, I was there, of course, to cover it. I wasn't there marching. Um, so I'm impartial. But just this mass gathering in the bitter cold of Washington, D.C. was just kind of a sight to be seen. And seconds to air, I'm trying to memorize my lines, really get in the headspace of what I'm about to say. And out of the blue, this woman bounds up to me. And it maybe it was the green jersey knit scarf that I was wearing that caught her eye. I can't even, I don't even know how she saw me because I'm kind of standing off to the side. She bounds up to me, runs past my producer who's frantically trying to stop her because, you know, we're about to go live. And she (laughs) says, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is so good to see you here. Thank you for being you. And then she ended with a namaste and a bow. So I think she might have been confused about my own background, but <laughs> the intention was good. I, I, I know why she did it. And at the moment, I was annoyed because she made me lose my train of thought um, seconds <laughs> before air. Yeah. But after that, and I had time to reflect, it was heartwarming and it was nice because people wanted to go out of their way to make sure that I knew just because you might be hearing things um, on the news about uh, a presidential candidate or a president or a party um, that doesn't want to make you welcome, there are people in this country who want to make sure that you feel just as welcome. When you hear the phrase Muslim ban, hmm. what goes through your head? What actually goes through my head is just the stories of people who that ban actually affects. And so we've had a, several of them on the show. And it's just, they're heartbreaking, really, because you have people who are just 
going about their everyday lives and now are thrown into total uncertainty pretty arbitrarily, you know. And so you have people who say, well, the goals of it might be um, advantageous. There might be, you know, a reason to do this. But if you are not actually putting anyone on the ban from whom our last quote unquote terrorist attacks have happened from, what is the point? Where's the justification from? Um, so I think there's a lot of confusion there. And, you know, I share in that confusion, um, especially because I am African American. So this is my home. So a travel ban presumably would never affect me, but I, I really should not say never, never say never, because I still think that Muslim trumps a lot of different things when someone is out to get Muslims. Sometimes it comes off as a political talking point or a generic phrase. And I think that, as you point out, the Muslim community by no means is monolithic. Mm-hmm. So to, to sort of have that sort of general phrase out there, it just leaves a lot to the imagination, yeah. which I guess could be the political intent. But Right. And then, of course, negates the fact that, I mean, there are so many American citizens who are Muslims who, you know, born and raised here and contributing to the society. It's just it, it almost feels so cliche to have to say it, but I still do have to say it because there are people who don't recognize it. And that there are definitely large swaths of people who have still never met a Muslim. And so there is still the need to have to say, you know, Muslims are born and raised here just just like you are. And so the quote unquote label of a, of a Muslim ban really does nothing to help break down that misunderstanding. Yeah. You lived in D.C. since 2006. Mm-hmm. Right. You've been around the block. Yeah. Thank uh, you. <laughs> how have things evolved over that time period for you as an African-American woman, mm-hmm. Muslim? I mean, how has the conversation changed? Hmm. I think immediately after 9-11, and because the school I went to was attended by you know, majority Muslims, the surrounding suburb in, uh, in Chicago, the south suburbs, they knew that. And so right after the attacks happened, school got canceled for about two weeks because people came to the area and they picketed and you know, they were throwing eggs and people were angry, um, understandably, and then taking that anger out on the closest targets that they could think of. After that died down, you had the community where the mosque and the school is making sure that their doors were more open to make sure people understood what Islam is, who Muslims are. So there was a lot of, you know, we are not the people that you're afraid of. We do not associate ourselves with people who are doing this country harm. Get to know us. Fast forward, you know, it's 2017, and still you do unfortunately have people who are committing acts of atrocity in the name of the religion that I I belong to and I believe in and, and subscribe to. But now there's more of a push to remind people that we've been putting out apologies and condemnations for, you know, years now. And so there is a split in the Muslim community just among the conversations that I have with friends and people who still feel like, no, we we have to condemn this out loud because then people will say we didn't condemn it and then they'll link us. And others who say, I have nothing to do with this. We shouldn't have to be um, put on the spot to condemn something that others are doing in the name of something that we share. You talk about misunderstanding. You were on an an excellent podcast recently. (laughs) Hey, this is a class. And this is Mecca. And you're listening to Identity Politics, a podcast on... And it was uh, discussed that Essence Magazine, which is the preeminent black women's magazine, had a a woke 100 women. And there wasn't a single African-American Muslim woman. 
I noticed, and everyone on Black Muslim Twitter also noticed, Mm -hmm. this publication that's huge specifically for and by Black women failed to highlight a single Black Muslim. So insane. Like, I immediately have, like, 10 Black Muslim women that just popped in my head. Yeah. like Was that a slight omission or lack of education, lack of understanding? What was that? That's a really good question, especially because... African Americans, for the most part, all know a Muslim, whether they know one personally or, you know, went to school with one or their uncle was once in the nation. You know, there's a history with Islam in the African American community. And, you know, some of that goes back to slavery. A lot of the first slaves here were Muslims who were forced to convert. Um, So in the black community, you know, they're not as unfamiliar with Islam as other members of other communities. And so then when you see that and you see a whole list of people and they don't include anyone of the Muslim faith, it's disheartening. And it's also, I don't want to cast aspersions. I don't want to pretend to guess at, at the reasons behind it. Um, but I don't think it's for lack of knowing one. I think it just it might just be not thinking about it. How do you address the fact that Muslims are not you know, monolithic when there are so many kind of generalized Islam questions? <laughs> um, I tend to say that I can only speak for myself straight away I say these are you know my personal opinions I can't represent the majority of Muslim women black women hijabi women we're all so different and come from such different backgrounds but you need to do you need to I mean here we are asking you about your scarf mm-hmm. that's got to get a little old not yet <laughs> well, thank you. We have more questions. <laughs> I mean, is there a point where, I mean, d- is it important to have these conversations so that eventually you we'll don't? We'll stop having them. Yes. You don't need for to? For sure. For sure. I mean, I actually have a line. I, I said it in a speech not too long ago. And, you know, if I, if I see one more hijabi woman shatters this stereotype, then I'm going to shatter my screen. So, yes. In that sense, I will admit that those those headlines annoy me. Right. The fact that we have a fencer who's from the U.S., from New York, and she's awesome, and she's the first one to represent her community, it's pretty cool that she wears a scarf is the reason, and we all probably know who she is. And, of course, that's Ifti Hajj Muhammad, so shouts out to her. But it's not just because she wears a scarf that she got to the Olympics. You know, this woman is strange for years and years and years. So I, I like to make sure that that is not... Um, the sole reason that we're talking about someone. I am just a journalist, which is why I, I don't really ever call myself a hijabi journalist. Well, I'm, I didn't get into it because of that. I got into it because I love journalism and I love talking uh, to people and telling their stories. But that said, representation matters. Do you feel like you're a cultural ambassador? Who Do you I get tired like of, of being a cultural ambassador? No. One, because I'm not big enough yet. <laughs> so there's nothing <laughs> nothing to get tired of yet. Um, sometimes that is, it's weighty, you know, because you you realize you're in the public eye. I mean, that's my job. I'm in the public eye. But it doesn't just turn off when the cameras turn off. But I feel that the steps that led me here were ones that, you know, it took a lot of hard work, but then there's also a reason that I'm here. And so if that reason is because I've inspired some little girl to know that she can do what I'm doing, she can travel where I've traveled to, she can be in the rooms and at the tables that I'm at that she never imagined herself being at, or if it's just because I am allowing another voice and another perspective to inform decisions. I don't know, but both of those are really good reasons. I'll take them. So when you started off or when you were in school and you said that, you know, your teachers gave you some frank 
realistic mm-hmm. descriptions of the industry and you know you were appreciative of it are we on a road to that changing so that you see more women wearing a scarf i mean are we moving in that direction i definitely think so just because i mean America as a whole is getting a lot more colorful. And so you see more people that look like their audiences more and more. We have not reached peak, you know, level of that yet by any means. I mean, I would ask you the same question. Do you think that we're eventually going to get there where the fact that there is an African-American man, Latino man, Muslim woman, African-American descent, like that's not a thing that you even really need to note. That's just normal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, how long is it going to take till we get there? Because, yes, there was a time when there wasn't an African-American man or woman, you know, anchoring the primetime news. You say the same about the Latinos. Yeah. I think we're sort of in a push-me-pull-you state. You've seen some progress, but you've seen some retrenches. You mentioned it's it's an interesting time. I mean, my thing, I'm an ice hockey freak. (laughs) I play ice hockey. I I write about ice hockey. And there's a hockey highlight show on weekly, and it has like three anchors. And every now and then, they'll have three black guys anchoring. Wow. Yeah. And I I, I know one of the anchors, and I'll I'll tweet him, and I'll say, that's black guy night. (laughs) And he'll say, yeah, that's That's how we roll. So you you see that. (laughs) We're we're there. The next plateau is to get into key decision-making positions. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the next stop. Yes, yes, those offices at the top. But I definitely think we'll get there. Definitely. In cobalt blue, no less. (laughs) In cobalt blue. (laughs) It's a good color. Thanks again to Malika Bilal for being here, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at mcclatchydc.com slash mm. The show is produced and edited by Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn, and thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority. 